Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. And uh, the title of my message today is, uh, We Okay? And uh, if you have a sensitive attachment, um, you know this phrase. This is your mantra. Uh, This is essentially your slogan. Uh, We okay? Uh, Just always checking in and wondering the answer to this question. Now, if you're wondering what it feels like to have a sensitive attachment style, it's sort of like this. Let's say that you get invited to a get-together at someone's house over a text message. And like three of the seven people on the text message are like, I'm in, including you. And the person that sends the text message, the original invite, they reply specifically to the other two people of like, glad you're there. Oh man, did you see that game last night? But they do not single you out in the reply. And so you panic. You keep checking your phone. You're waiting. You're like, well, what's going on? How come I didn't get a personal reply? What's happening right now? You start to think like, am I not supposed to be on this text thread? Like, did they not really mean to invite me to this party? So now you're feeling like a little bit flustered. You're not really sure what's going on. So you decide that the best strategy, because you don't want to ask outright. That's going to be weird for everybody. So you just decide to chime in a couple more times with some banter, right? And so that they'll realize it's you. And then somebody can pull you aside and let you know if you are or aren't supposed to be a part of this party. And so you chime in by asking like, hey, I guess I'll bring chips. And then no one says anything. Now you feel even weirder. And you're like, oh, man. No one, I, and you don't know at this point, like, are they, are they not getting the texts? Do, do they not want me at this party? Do they just not like chips? I, you're so torn. You don't know. You're overanalyzing this thing. Uh, by this time, it's an hour into work. You haven't gotten anything done. You're obsessing over this text message thread, and you're just like, I, I'm not really sure what's going on. And so you reply back. Maybe like a little joke will sort of stir the pot. So you're like, I don't know. Doritos are a go-to, but Ruffles have ridges, LOL which is a horrible joke. It's not even funny. And then you're just like, why did I even say that? Now everyone thinks I'm stupid. Why did I even throw that out there? And, but fortunately, it gets you one reply. One person replies back, and they're just like, whatever, sounds good. And you're like, wait a minute. It, it, does, it, does it really sound good? Like, is it whatever? Like, I like all chips, or is it like, whatever, shut up, stop texting us. We don't like you. Why are you all even on this thread with us? And so now you're feeling nervous. So you're like, you know what? Um, I'm going to go ahead and, and just double check that uh, everybody's not upset uh, with another follow-up text. And so you throw another thing in the group text. You're like, sorry about all the text, guys. <laughs> Don't mean to be annoying <laughs> texting, right? No one says anything to that. Except for one person eventually later is like, it's fine. See you tonight. But then you're just like, is it fine? Is it really fine? Because it doesn't feel fine. It feels like everyone's mad at you is what it feels like. And it's probably because this invite was an accident. These people clearly did not mean to have you at this party. And also, you still do not know what kind of chips to get. You think about this all day. It is your primary focus for the rest of the entire workday. You're thinking about it in the back of your mind. You get off, you're a little sick to your stomach. You go to two different stores. You buy 17 bags of chips every imaginable flavor they have. You go to the party location. You get there early, but you don't want to go in early because that's weird. So you sit in your car 
uh, until a couple people go in. Then you decide to go in. You don't take all the chips. You take half of them because as you're sitting in your car, you're like, 17 is weird. That's, that's too much. And so you, 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 you sort of pick through which chips are the best chips, going to make the best impression, like most like You actually do a Google search to see what chips are the most liked party chips. And you select and you bring in those chips. And then when you get in, you're like, hey, guys. And they're like, oh, wow, six bags of chips. And you're like, six bags like that's too much or six bags like there should be more because I got a whole bunch more in my car. And then they're just like, ha, 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 they don't know if it's true or not. And you pretend it's not, even though it is. <laughs> then you're kind of starting to say chill at the party, and you're walking around saying hi to everybody until you see somebody who was on the text thread. And then you're just like, hey, sorry about all those texts earlier. You know how, like, with the group text, and they're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Most of the people that you say this to have no idea what you're talking about which kind of makes you feel good because you're like, oh, they're not mad at me. But then the more you think about it, it makes you feel bad because it means that either they weren't paying attention or they were but don't care about you or are annoyed with you. And it's probably because they never invited you to this party to begin with. You feel stressed about it. You hang out, you leave early, you eat the remaining 11 bags of chips that night while binge watching a show and telling yourself you're never going to go to another party again. So if you're wondering what having a sensitive or sometimes called anxious attachment style is like, it's like that, except with everything all the time. And maybe you're thinking like, man, that, like being around someone like that, it just, that feels exhausting. And if you're thinking that that maybe is how it is, then you're right, it is exhausting. But you know who it is most exhausting for? The person who is sort of constantly, uncontrollably running all of these scenarios in their head. And those of you that don't have this attachment style are just like, okay, I have a solution. How about they just stop? <laughs> and uh, they're all thinking like, wow, I never th- heard or thought of that before. Um, this, we don't even need this sermon. But the reason they can't stop is because their experiences have convinced them that closeness is the result of right behavior, requiring you to vigilantly monitor others' moods for potential rifts that you are responsible to repair. Like if there's something off with someone, you need to diagnose it, lean into it, figure it out, solve it, and provide the solution to get rid of the angst and anxiety between the two of you. People with a sensitive attachment think, like, it's up to me to hold my relationships together. So, like, if I can anticipate everyone else's thoughts and feelings, I can be and do whatever they need. And then I can stop the discomfort before it starts or expands. And it's this thought process that that leads people with this style to do all sorts of things. This is why people with a sensitive attachment style tend to... uh, I'll give you a list, and um, you can just stare at this being like, oh, that's interesting, or mortified, where you're like, oh my gosh, he knows my secret shame. People with this attachment style tend to regularly obsess over what others are thinking and feeling or what they might be thinking and feeling. They find themselves looking for hidden meanings in everything everybody else says and does. They, they, They don't really feel confident in a relationship unless they're actually with that person in the moment. They they feel like they can't say no or disagree without damaging the connection between them and that other person. 
they, they, they secretly test others to see if they're willing to notice the test, analyze the test, and then jump through the hoops in order to prove their devotion. They fear that, like, if I, I screw up this thing, then I'm never going to get another chance. They compulsively check in through every means possible, phone calls, emails, text messages, DMs, um, even more so and in rapid succession when they're not getting a quick reply because obviously something is wrong. They become so preoccupied with the relationship that they have trouble focusing on anything else. They, they hang out where the other person might be in hopes that they'll just bump into them. They threaten to leave oftentimes in like big dramatic fashion and then like secretly hope that the other person will beg them to stay. They make extreme emotional statements to try and force engagement and they really believe that they can fix whatever is wrong in this relationship if you would just tell them what it is already. And, and here's what happens is we become clingy in this way when we worry that saying or doing one wrong thing will ruin everything. And some of us, this is the situation we find ourselves in, which is why we're checking and worrying and scrambling and double-checking and trying to minimize the disconnection, frantically, even sometimes when it doesn't exist. Now, maybe you know somebody who is anxious. Maybe it's you. Maybe you just know them. And, and probably the first gut reaction assumption is like, oh, man, they must have had horrible parents. And if you're the parent of somebody who's anxious, you're just like, I need to leave right now because you're feeling awkward. But that's not necessarily true. In fact, research shows that our adult attachment styles, so the attachment styles we end up with as grown-ups, are really the result of three things. The first is inherited biology. We all have sort of a tendency to have, um, to either be more dialed into others, less, more anxious, less anxious. So there's a biological component to this thing. There's also our upbringing, so the way that we are raised, the interaction with our parents, caregivers, our family dynamic in our home, but also our past relationships. So uh, the previous romances, close friendships, other relational history sort of train us how to attach in relationships as an adult. So it could be like that, you know, she leans nervous naturally, and she actually had a really great dad, but her first husband was a narcissistic nightmare. And that's really done some things to the way that she attaches and approaches and connects in relationships. Now, some of these sensitive traits sound bad, and there's a reason for that. Some of them are, actually. But some of them that sort of come with this attachment style actually seem like superpowers, especially to the rest of us that maybe don't possess them. Things like, you know, these people ha often have the ability to map other people's behavioral patterns. They're like hyper aware of everything that's going on and everything that people do. And so they sort of know what people are gonna do even before they do it, oftentimes. They feel and show empathy to the people around them. They can tap into how people are feeling and actually mimic and mirror that, that feeling back to them and actually care about them. Um, they can read and anticipate the moods and wants of other people, um, knowing that like this person, when they come home, they're likely to be in this mood and this is what they probably want and need in order to get to this place. 
They troubleshoot potential situational conflict because it's easy for them to size up. This person with this pattern comes into this person with this pattern. That may be, but if we run interference, this may be able to sort of dissolve this situation. And they're also prepared for multiple possibilities. Um, this is like this sort of like person that you want with you when you are going somewhere of just like, oh man, wish I had tissues. And they're like, I got tissues. I got four different types of tissues. You like aloe, no aloe? Maybe you like the rough stuff, the soft stuff. What do you want? I've thought about all of these things. That's why I'm pulling a roller case to the movies. <laughs> now, I, I want to give you a biblical example of, of this. There's a, this Old Testament story where a family moves to a foreign country. And when they're there, the the, the the dad and the mom, they have two sons, and those sons grow up. And as they get older, they marry two local girls. And then, the, like, tragedy sort of strikes the story. Um, the mom's husband dies, and soon after, both her sons die. And so she's left alone, just her and her two daughters-in-law. And so she decides that she's going to go back to where she's from. And both of the girls are just like, we'll come with you. You know, we want to be with you. And that triggers this whole exchange and the characters in this story, if it doesn't sound familiar to you, are Ruth, um, who's one of the daughters-in-law, Orpha, who's uh, another one of the daughters-in-law, and then Naomi, who's the, the mom or the mother-in-law in this story. And this is found in Ruth chapter 1, verse 11. This is the exchange that the like, hey, we'll, we'll, we'll come with you if you leave, sort of sparks. It says this in Ruth chapter 1, verse 11, that Naomi protested, why should you go with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, return to your parents' homes. I'm too old to marry again. Even if I got pregnant tonight, then what? Would you wait for those boys to grow up and refuse to marry anyone else? No, of course not. Things are far worse for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. What an extreme statement. Also, I'm going to start using this anytime I'm just upset. Are you okay? I'm okay. But the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. It's like they just don't have the chicken parm. Calm down. It's fine. Get something else. And so verse 14, they wept together. And Orpha kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said, your sister-in-law left and went home. You should too. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. Now, we usually, like, when we hear this part of the story, we usually think of this as inspirational and beautiful, and in some ways it really is. But there are more than one way to read this. And I think through the lens of attachment, it also kind of looks like two really anxious people frantically scrambling to do whatever they can to keep the other person close. Like, think about it. Think about like how this, this exchange comes into play. You have Naomi who is pushing Ruth away, but she also kind of wants her to stay. And the reason we know this is because she tells her to go home, but then actually when she's just like, I'm coming, she's like, okay. And then they go together. She makes extreme statements to force engagement, which is a very sensitive reaction. What am I going to get pregnant tonight and have more babies? 
and you'll just wait for them to grow up. She's trying to get an exchange from these extreme statements. It looks like she's actually testing these people in her orbit to see if they love her enough to come after her when she walks away. And Ruth, on her side, like she can't stand the idea of being away from Naomi. Like she may actually want to not want to leave her whole life and her home behind. We're not really totally sure in the story, but she can't say no because if she screws this up, she's not going to get another chance. And she's so preoccupied with this um, like relational rift that she says a lot of emotional and, and very charged stuff to force in an intensity level that can't be ignored. Think about what Ruth is actually saying. Like, I am going to abandon my home, my friends, my values, and my faith just to keep this relationship afloat. And maybe you're like, oh, that's sweet. And the reason we think that is because a lot of movies and music in our culture romanticize uh, relational anxiety, making us think, like, if it's not dramatic, it's not love. That's how I know like we're in love, is that like um, it's either ecstasy or complete exhaustion. Like those are the only things that are acceptable. I, I, I need to connect. I mean, we know this because it's not like Julia Roberts and Taylor Swift are going to lie to us, guys. We, we can trust these people. But here's the irony of all this. Always being anxious that you're going to ruin everything often ends up being the thing that ruins everything. And the reason this is true is because the people around us get, get worn down and worn out by our constant overanalyzing and second-guessing and testing and questioning and monitoring and moodiness and assuming the worst. Because unfortunately, love and trust aren't the anchors of the relationship. Insecurity and anxiety are. But it's worse. I just want to pile on here. Um, because the reality of it is, how we attach to others is also how we attach to God. Which means those of us with this attachment style don't just do this stuff with other people. We do it with God as well. We find ourselves wondering all the time, like, are God and I okay? okay? Is he disappointed in me? Is he mad at me? Why does he feel so far away? Like, what did I do wrong? Maybe if I do all the right things and practice all the right rituals and avoid all the worst sins, I can, I can win God back. We'll be close again. I mean, Jesus must have misspoken when he said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I don't even know what that means because maintaining a relationship is very burdensome, especially with God. And maybe your religious experiences have only sort of served to cement in this suspicion that you have. And people tell us, you know, in you know, Christian circles, like, you need to stay close to God, which is kind of code for, like, you better be good. And if someone messes up or does something that we all agree is, like, you know, wrong or sinful, we're like, they're far from God. Oh, man, they're running from God. That's what they're doing. And the message that we sort of accumulate from this can be, you know, God likes you when you're good, but not when you're bad. And so you better pull it together because God can only connect with you if you are 
or interact or do certain things. Like, and he's not gonna help you with that process because, I mean, honestly, he's too upset to help you right now because of what you did. It's up to you to maintain this relationship with him and he is not gonna stick around when you were at your worst. And so, for a lot of us, right, you know, you go to all the Bible studies you possibly can. You only listen to worship music. You're in like three accountability groups. You have, you've subscribed to seven different preaching podcasts. You don't drink or smoke or dance or wear sinful tank tops. You don't even watch rated R movies. You don't allow your kids to say the word stupid. I should have even said it right now. And even though you do all this stuff, it still feels like it's not enough. And after a while, it becomes sort of hard to tell what is driving all you're doing? Like, is it God's love for you or is it your fear of frustrating him? Because all of this stuff isn't necessarily bad in and of itself, but what is the motivator behind doing all of this stuff? And I think for those of us that are, are sensitive in our attachment style, it's the fear I got to tell you, just from my conversations with people, some of the most spiritually disciplined among us still go to bed every night with the very real nervousness that they are going to wake up in hell. To them, God is a perfectionistic father demanding his kids don't embarrass him or else he will pull back from them and emotionally torture them. And for some of us, hearing that out loud in, in real words spoken by someone else sounds like a lot, but there's part of you that's just like, yeah, but isn't that the way it is? Here's what's crazy. Scripture paints an altogether different picture of God. There's a scene in the New Testament where Jesus is being baptized. He's about ready to start his earthly ministry. And when it happens, it's this like really interesting scene where his cousin is baptizing him and the, the sky parts and this beam of light comes down and, um, and says this in Matthew chapter three, verse 17, that a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. And some of us, we've spent our whole lives hoping to hear these words, doing everything we can to earn these words from our earthly father, and it's just never happened. And what's interesting to me about this is that Jesus hasn't done anything yet. It sort of flies in the face of our sensitive theory that, you know, connection is based on what you do. Like, if you look at the story of Jesus, he hasn't taught anything or performed any miracles or drawn any crowds, which means the joy that, like, God's son brings him and the closeness they share is not about what he does. It's about who he is. And the thing I want you to understand today is that God looks at you the same way. Because God loves you. You bring him joy, and he wants you close regardless of what you do. And some of you need to write this down, take a picture of it, save it in your phone, blow it up, and cover an entire wall with it, because this is the hardest thing for you to actually believe is real. One, one psalmist in the Old Testament sort of talked about this idea this way. This is in Psalm 
139, verse 7. It says, Lord, you have examined my heart and you know everything about me. You know my thoughts. You see me when I work and when I rest. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it? I can never escape you. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to hell, you're there. Even if you're even there, your, your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. Even in darkness, I can't hide from you. This is a mind-blowing piece of scripture because what it's saying is that God knows you, first of all. It's not like he's like, yeah, God's okay with me, but it's just because he doesn't know certain things. It's saying God knows you, maybe even better than you know yourself. He knows what you think. He knows what you've done. He knows what you're about to do. There's nothing about you that is a surprise to God. And you mess up a lot. But nothing can keep you from God. Nothing can keep God from coming close, including and especially not sin. Let me just dispel a myth this morning. God is not scared of sin. And some of us grew up thinking that he was. If God like caught us in something simple, he'd be like, what? Oh, my word. Well, I can't be around this. I'm holy. <laughs> this panic sort of runs through us. I wonder if you've ever done something that for you felt so dark that you were sure God would never go there. And if he did, he would really only be disappointed, so you hope he doesn't. And if you thought that, I want you to pay attention that this poem is saying, even if you descended into the most hellish of situations, you know what you would find there? God. God waiting for you to guide and strengthen and support you, to remind you that you bring him joy and he wants you close no matter what. Here's the, the bottom line that I hope you grab hold of this morning, sensitive attachment or not. Perfection is not a prerequisite for connection. And it's not that God doesn't care about sin. God does care about sin. God really does hate sin because he hates what it does to the people that he loves. He hates what it does to their lives, to their communities, to their societies. But I got to tell you, of all the reasons, good reasons, to avoid sin in our lives, getting close to God is not one of them. Because God is always a whisper away. He's always there. Like, even when we try and walk away from God, you know what God does? He's like, I guess we're going. And he walks with us. And if this is not how you see God, you have a warped picture of God. When my kids do something that is counter to our values, and it feels like this big moment, we... We sit down and talk about it. We don't talk about it immediately because usually everybody needs to calm down. And I'll usually go in and I'll, I'll sit with one of my kids and sort of peel apart like, okay, what happened back there? What's going on? What are we feeling? 
<clears throat> and as we talk through it, I do it in a calm way because I'm sitting with them. I want them to know that the relationship is not up for grabs, even though I didn't like their behavior. And sometimes there's consequences. And I even often tell them, do not do this again. But I don't do it because, uh, you know, I don't say that because, like, if they do the thing again, I'm going to hate them and I'm going to begin avoiding and ignoring them until they get it together. I tell them not to do it again because I don't want them to hurt themselves and other people because I care about them and how their life goes. And even when they don't take my advice and they do the thing anyway, I still love them. They're still my kids. I still want them close. They still bring me joy. This is a picture of God's relationship with us. When it comes to your relationship with God, I just want you to understand that it's him who's doing most of the work, not expecting you to hold it together. There's this incredible verse in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 8. This is the Apostle Paul is one of the first Christian missionaries, and he's sort of trying to explain God and a relationship or closeness with God to some of the early Christians that are used to a system of religion that tells them that you know, it maybe, maybe it is based on what you do. And this is what he says. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So none of us can boast about it. In other words, the pressure is off. It's not up to you. In fact, according to this, in much of the New Testament, the biggest obstacle to your closeness to God is just you believing as if God actually wants to be close to you and then living out of that belief. So how do we internalize this? You know, when you hear something brand new and you're just like, man, if I believe that, that would be helpful and that's really cool, but I don't believe you because this other thing is really entrenched in my soul. And I don't know if I can escape it. In other words, like, you know, we don't improve by learning new information, but by stacking up new experiences. This is why, like, you can know what you should do or what you should be like or what you, and, and, and it doesn't really have an impact on you because you just go with, like, what experience tells you is true. And this is, like, this is why I think that God doesn't just sort of stay at a distance in heaven and tell us that he loves us unconditionally. Instead, he comes to earth, he becomes friends with sinners, and then he dies for their sin. In other words, like, our, our connection with God is transformed not by new information, but by Jesus inviting us into new experiences. And so, for those of you who may have a sensitive attachment, I want to suggest that you adopt practices that reinforce that true closeness isn't determined by performance. And I say practices because it's not enough for you to hear this one sermon and be like, yeah, he made a couple of good points. I think I'm going to stop being anxious all the time about my relationships, especially with God. You're going to have to practice this knowledge in experiential ways in order for it to actually take root 
in your soul and begin to change how you think and feel. And I want to give you a few suggestions of what that might look like, because you're like, what, what, what sort of practices, what would these practices look like? One example might be like meditating on and memorizing scriptures about God's unconditional love. One good one is Romans 8, verse 35 through 38. It was a, a verse that we read last week about the idea that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Another idea would be to, to spend time with people that reflect this aspect of God. People that like, when you tense up, they're calm and patient. And even when you're just like, that's enough, they're like, you know what, let's give a second chance. And you're just like, this person is crazy because they're reflecting a God that maybe you really haven't gotten to know. Another one would be to take time each week to just be with God and others without having to do anything for God and others. Sort of the, the, the ritual um, in scripture, they call the Sabbath, right? Which is sort of having a, like, like my connection to God and my, God's love for me and our closeness is not built on what I do. And I need an experience regularly that reminds me of that. So I can just sit here and be, and God still loves me. Another idea would be to openly acknowledge your mistakes to those close to you and invite them to comfort and help you. Now, this feels scary because you're like, well, if you admit your mistakes to other people, they'll pounce on you and push you away. But what if not everybody is like that? What if there are people, a lot of people, that reflect your heavenly Father and actually comfort you, pull you close, sit in the disappointment with you, and actually offer to help you move forward the last idea is to show those around you that disappointing you won't destroy their relationship with you. And this one will change you and it will change them. When you begin to treat other people like you believe God treats you, even when you don't feel that, it begins to sort of reprogram how you believe relationships work. In fact, I believe that this last one is really important because I think that God wants to transform other, other people's broken ideas of him through healthy experiences with you. If we flash back to the Ruth story, she goes with her mother-in-law and they settle down in this community and she does a lot of action in order to prove her worth. It's hard to tell when you read the text, like, is it because of Naomi's love for her and her love for Naomi, or is it built on this sort of frantic anxiety that she needs to hold the relationship together? But then she meets someone, Boaz, who shows her unconditional love by pulling her close and keeping her close despite her past and her insecurities, and her mistakes. In other words, he does for her what God did for him. And I wonder, I wonder who God might have put in your life intentionally so that as you are learning about who God really is, you can do for them what God has done for you you can begin to give them a glimpse of the reality that true closeness 
is not the result of us anxiously scrambling to do everything right and perfect. It's the result of us being us. It's the result of us being connected with people who care about us just as we are, who are leaned into the relationship. It's allowing ourselves to be loved even when we don't get it right. And this is what I want to pray into your life today, that you would both receive this and give this away to other people because that's what you're designed to do and that is the path towards healing and security. Would you bow your heads across this room with me this morning? I want to pray for all of us, but specifically, I want to just pray for maybe a few of you in particular. Maybe as I was describing who God really is, you found yourself thinking, he is talking about a being that I am not at all familiar with. This is not my image of God. And I think today may be the beginning of you actually leaning in to a connection with who God really is, not the warped perception of who he has been presented to you as. See, God is always right there with us. But it doesn't always transform us until we acknowledge it and believe in it. Today, I want to invite you into that belief. We, we call it here at South Hills saying yes to Jesus. And it's simply this, just saying like, God, if this is who you really are, I open my heart and life to you. And I want you to flood into my life. I want you to teach me about who you are and who I am. And I want you to calm my nerves, my anxiety. Allow me to believe that I am truly loved and lovable. And... um. I want to invite you into that today. If that's you, where everybody's eyes are closed and heads are bowed, would you just slip a, a hand up? I'm not going to call you out or embarrass you. I just want to know who I'm praying for this morning. Awesome. God, I know you see these several hands that were raised in all three of our sections here. God, I know you see every heart as watching online or listening over the podcast. And God, I pray that you would connect with them in this moment, that you would reveal to them that you are always there. And not to shame us, not to make us feel bad, not to tell us everything we're doing wrong. You are there because you love us, because we're yours, because we bring you joy, because you want to be close and God, it's out of that closeness and connection. It's out of that comfortability and security of experiencing your love that we actually have the courage and the ability to take steps forward towards health in our own lives. And God, I pray that you would make yourself known and true to each person in this place. God, whether we are turning and waking up to the reality that you are with us for the first time, or God, whether we are just being renewed in our thinking in this moment, God, may your closeness transform us. Thank you that you do the work to pull us near. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.